Well, welcome back again. Um, we're uh, continuing to look at this whole relationship between church and state. We, we were working on what the confessions say. Again, the Lutheran confessions, those documents in this thing called the Book of Concord, which was put out by uh, over the course of the 1500s by the Lutheran churches as they were both uh, dealing with the problems of the Reformation and dealing with some internal um, disagreements. And we still look at those as extremely important authorities for our own thinking today. It's in fact in our church constitution that everything we do will be in line with the Book of Concord because we believe the Book of Concord is a true and a right expression of what the Bible teaches. So it's not that we hold the Book of Concord as, as important as the Bible or as an authority separate from the Bible, but we hold it as an authority because it agrees with the Bible and it, expo and it uh, explains a lot of things and teachings from the Bible very clearly and in a lot of ways that are very helpful. So we continue to look back at that even today. And like I said, it touches a lot on this particular issue as we saw a lot last week and we'll continue to see this week. We'll finish up looking at how the confessions talk about the relationship between secular and spiritual authority. I should say, I, I assume we'll finish up with that today. And I, I envision only one more week on this topic. But again, you never really know what will happen. All right. Well, then let's uh, dive right into it. I think where we finished up on this last time was uh, we had just finished or started talking a lot about um, item F there on your lesson four. That is the uh, sense that a Christian who holds a position of secular authority maintains his or her duties to both of those roles of authority simultaneously. As a holder of secular authority, that person will seek to uphold the civil order. They'll do their job as a public official of trying to maintain order, promote good behavior according to the second table of the law, and uh, discourage or punish bad behavior according to the second table of the law. These people who are in this position of actually being governing officials, and right now we are very much talking about people specifically who are called to the task of being in the government. They are definitely in um, a very interesting and uh, not always easy position uh, because they're so heavily, they're not just living under secular authority, citizens of this side of God's world, but they're actually the ones who are called to uh, enforce and carry out and execute that authority. And we talked about how just because they're in both at the same time, that they're members of the church, we're assuming here, by the way, that we're talking about a Christian member of the secular authority, uh, it doesn't mean that suddenly they stop being Christian when they put on their job, their hat as the governor, the congressperson, the police officer, the judge down at the local court. They're, of course, always going to be Christian. And in that sense, they are always, always under the spiritual authority. That is to say, they always live under the authority of Christ who has redeemed them, sinner though they are, and brought them or filled them with the Holy Spirit and convicted them both of their sinfulness, their need for God's Savior, and the d new desire to follow Christ and live as one of his people. 
All those things we said about the functions of the spiritual authority, bringing people to repent, to faith, to new obedience, and to eternal life. Those four things, those all are always going to be true of the person who is a Christian, no matter what job they are otherwise doing. And to try to say that they would take off that hat, set aside all of those claims on them that Christ makes, and carry out the secular authority, would be to any Christian sounding like madness. Okay, I'll set aside the fact that I'm a sinner. I'll set aside the fact that God accuses me of always failing to keep his law. I'll set aside the fact that God redeems me. I'll set aside the fact that I desire with all my, every fiber of my being to live in this life that God has given me. And I'll set aside my confidence that I and all who believe are going to live eternally, and therefore my secular authority is only of limited temporal, temporary significance. And then I'll just start doing this. It would be insane. You cannot do that and be any kind of real Christian. That would be the same as saying, lose your faith for the time that you're being this position. You wouldn't ask, like we talked about last time, a trucker to do that, would you? Would you ask a nurse, set aside your Christian faith and don't let it influence you. Don't let it even count as true in any sense of your mind while you're carrying out your duties in the medical profession. Of course not. Aside from being completely out of line with what Christianity teaches about the totalizing claims that Christ makes on you, it would just be psychologically impossible. How are you going to set aside your most deeply held and cherished values at certain times of the day for certain purposes? You're not. Nobody is even capable of that. And if they think they are, they're fooling themselves. That's not to say that they just become mouthpieces of the church or of the Christian faith when they enter the secular authority. It's not as though suddenly the only thing they do is through the secular authority try to impose spiritual authority, right? It's not like now that's uh, let's just say, uh, uh, let's just assume our current chairman got elected to Congress. All of a sudden, he's just going to be a, a basically a constant evangelist to everybody in Congress. And every time it's his turn to peek on any policy decision, he'll just say, well, Scripture says this, and therefore you must do this. And by the way, you're all sinners. You need to repent and be forgiven. He has other jobs to do as a member of the secular authority. He'll always do them with those convictions. And obviously, they're going to shape the way he approaches his jobs as an administrator of secular authority. But his secular authority does not simply become an outgrowth of the claims that Christ makes on him in that straightforward way. Does that make sense? Like, he'll still want to talk about what are good fair tax issues to have. What are good regulations to uh, help business owners work well together? What kinds of infrastructure do we need? All those kinds of things that secular authority normally does, he'll still do, and he'll still do it with interests that, like we said, will broadly align with, presumably, interests from other people who aren't Christian. After all, secular authority, like we said, is all about second table of the law. Things that are hardwired into creation even though creation and people are sinful, it's all those things that God commanded about how we relate to each other are still at some level functioning within us. And every society knows you cannot long survive as a society without at least having some kind of semblance of those kinds of orders, like we talked about before. 
If you just let people take whatever they want from one, anyone they want whenever they want, ignore the seventh commandment, things are not going to go well. If you let people kill whoever they want, whenever they want, however they want, things are not going to go well. If you just let people not worry about their kids whatsoever, things are not going to go well for very long. And so governments have always, in almost every nation and civilization ever, had something that at least more or less approximated the second table of the law. Some less so than others. There's a reason those didn't ultimately last. But that fact remains, and so even non-Christians um, who operate the secular authority will still have the same fundamental job as the Christian. We've talked about all this before, I just wanted to spell it out again. Okay, that's pretty much summarizing what we talked about um, in line F there. Although, and I think we already read the uh, confessions on that point, but there's one little note there that we didn't get to, I don't think. Number three, um, so what can the spiritual authority legitimately expect of this person who is also exercising secular authority? I mean, the Reformation, that was the Christian nobility. The, the princes of the area were also members of the church. There are no doubt many Congress people, judges, even our president, all claim to be members of some uh, religious organization, or at least many of them, and many of them claim to be members of Christian organizations, right? So what can the, Christ, the spiritual authority, that is the church, as the uh, church in this sense, reasonably expect and legitimately expect from those kinds of public officials? Well, on the one hand, the church can uh, expect and demand that the member of the church continue to exercise their office faithfully and oh well. Now, of course, we have, I'll take an obvious instance of this. Let's say that uh, one of our members became a local judge and started being on the take for somebody. They, they were just completely corrupt and open to bribery. Now, of course, there are laws in the secular order against that, right? They would be answerable to the state. Presumably, if the state found out about it, that person would be punished, possibly removed from office. But even if the state didn't find out about it, let's say that yours truly or some several members of the congregation found out about this. The church would have the legitimate authority to go to that person and say, you are sinning against God, you need to repent, and call them back to doing their job, their God-given duty, and stop sinning against the people God has entrusted them to do. We don't say that, by the way, as members of public policy. We don't go to them and say, oh, we might say this as members of the secular order who are citizens of this government. The laws forbid this. This is a really bad and unjust thing you're doing. We can say that as Americans, right? But as Christians, we can go to that person and say, you are sinning against Christ. Repent. Knock it off. And now come and get for, come to church and be forgiven. And if, by the way, you consistently refuse to repent, if you're just going to keep going on with this bribery and this corruption, um, whatever the secular authority chooses to do or not do to you, we will, for our part, exercise our church discipline. We will continue to admonish you, stop doing this, this is openly sinful, it's a scandal, it's awful, and if you persist, we'll even excommunicate you. We'll stop treating you like you're a Christian. So the spiritual authority can expect and demand from its members that they actually act like Christians, that they act in line with the faith of the church. And that includes, that means they must do their secular duties well. So there's the first one, what we can demand. Do 
secular duties. Make sense? We're all on the same page? It makes me think of what I've heard that the, I'm sure all of you probably heard that, you know, the Catholic Church is talking about maybe uh, refusing communion to some politicians who are for abortion. Right, right. Um, and I won't get into that right now just because, and this is no. entirely by accident, this was not planned. We happen to be talking about that in Bible class at Sunday because a couple of members said, hey, we should talk about that in Bible class. Well, I, I was just thinking, you know, you were talking about this, exercising spiritual authority, right. doing that, and that just made me think about that. Right. Well, and that would be a, an instance where you might say, uh, it's not just secular duties, because those just to very quickly make that as a great bridge to the second point about what the spiritual authority can legitimately expect and demand of the public official who is also a member of their faith. Obviously, like we just said, do secular duties. And um, those politicians in that um, instance are claiming we're just trying to do our secular duties well. The tr and w w we can debate that later. But that's the basic claim. You can't compel us to act differently with your spiritual authority over us. That's, that's wrong. It would be, and you know, in a certain sense, it's true that this is a limit to the special, spiritual authority. And I'm, here's the very limited sense I mean that's true. It is not right for the spiritual authority to therefore say, you are a member of our church, therefore you should enact this particular policy because our congregation, our church body happens to agree that it's a really useful political one. That would be exceeding the spiritual authority over this person. It's no longer demanding you live in line with your faith in Christ and act in line with your faith in Christ and moving into also you should act in line with our political ambitions. Does that make sense? And that would be the church transgressing its boundaries, trying to force a politician by dint of its spiritual authority to do something bad. This was rampant in the Middle Ages, by the way. This is one of the key complaints the reformers and many Catholics had against the Catholic Church at the time. If the king started doing something you didn't like, what did the Pope do? <laughs> I'm going to excommunicate you if you don't do what I say. And then you'll go to hell. So you better get in line. That's illegitimate. It's not, the church should not try to influence politics in those kinds of ways. Its authority is to simply say over its member, this is what the Christian faith says. This is what it, any Christian will do. If you're not acting like that, you're acting in contradiction to your faith, to our church, and we're not going to treat you like a member of our church if you act in open contradiction to what every member of our church agrees this is what the Christian faith is. Make sense? Very different than saying, therefore, do A, B, or C. But going to this, what the church here is claiming, the bishops in this particular case, is kind of our second point. That you should actually act in line with faith. That is, don't do anything that is openly in contradiction to your faith. If you do, you're sinning. You're free as a public official, I suppose, to do what you want, even though you may be sinning against your duties. And we can have that argument by saying uh, whether it's appropriate, whether um, abortion laws are in line with the second table of the law, which, by the way, I'll say very unequivocally, it is patently against the, the way the government should be operating to allow the murder of citizens in that society. But that argument aside, at the very least, um, if the church says, for instance, 
it's really, really sinful to take bribes uh, to, uh, or rather, let me go actually to a different one. It's really, really sinful for you as a member of Congress or for any marriage to just randomly allow adultery rampantly, to just cheat on your marriage over and over and over again. It would be very odd for you to therefore pass a law that's tailor-made to try to allow for adultery freely and fully. So um, whether that violates that, the point is, in that kind of case, we can see that the bishops at least are trying on their own part to say, this is the church teaching. Your position seems to go directly against church teaching. And the policy you're pushing seems to um, promote things that go directly against church teaching. And therefore, we're simply saying, you should be acting in line with your faith. And if you're not, I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do as a politician, but we're not going to treat you as a member of the Catholic Church anymore. Now, again, I'm not going to talk about that specific case very much. I'm just saying that's the logic that the Catholic Church is employing here. Whether it's accurate or not, we can talk a lot more about Sunday. But the basic premise there, the idea that the Church can expect its members to act in line with their faith, to live up to both the first and the second tables of the law, is absolutely true. And uh, it becomes a very pastoral and church discipline issue when members of the Christian church act in their capacity as secular authorities in gross contradiction to their faith. Make sense? And some of these, some of these politicians, in my way of thinking, they're trying to separate their faith from their authority, which you can't really do. Well, right. And, and it's... And it is important to say, just to be clear, that it isn't always an easy thing to live in this tension. We have to, let's just be fair-minded and charitable towards all these people in public office. Um, whether we fundamentally agree with them or not, whether we even think that they're sinning or not, at least we should be fair-minded and say, it's not always easy to keep this tension in play. And it is a real tension because sometimes secular authority even when it has the best of intentions, ends up pushing and pulling in directions that even a really well-educated, well-catechized, deeply faithful Christian might not be clear on as whether this is against or in line with the claims of Christ on them. Does that make sense? Yeah, see how the devil works? He does. <laughs> well, and it's just to say when we're sinners ourselves, on the one hand, and also important to say, when we're limited in our own knowledge, not just a matter of sin, which is a huge one. We're finite. We don't understand every issue, do we? From every side. It doesn't necessarily pop into our head the ramifications of every issue that we think about, who they impact, how they impact, the consequences that flow out. So, uh, and we're going to come to this soon, it's not always clear that just because policy A has an immediate uh, relation to the claims of Christ, or what that immediate relationship is. Does that make sense? For instance, you could try to make a case that uh, taxing a certain group of people a certain amount of money is actually not in line with the scriptures. You could make the case, but it's always going to be a lot more tenuous of a case because there's all kinds of different things at play. That is, I'm just simply saying, we want to give them at least the charitable sense that they may very well be trying their best to live in this reality. And it's not easy because, for one thing, the devil is at work. Because, for one thing, we're sinful. And because, for another thing, we're limited. We don't know everything about how our decisions will impact. So it's a huge responsibility. 
And it's one I never want to have. And I'm certain if I had it, I would make all kinds of Christians mad about me being an unchristian person in the way I'm doing things. Now, that's not to say there's nothing to say. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But these are two basic principles we want to keep in mind about the claims of spiritual authority on public officials who also are Christian. And mine is who are Christian. They can't make, the, the two things are they can demand that the secular authorities do their secular duties as an outgrowth of their Christian faith. Because God has put this on them and they should recognize that they should be faithful and responsible in doing it, right? By the same token, because they are people who trust in Christ, they should act in line with that confidence and not against it. And that will, of course, carry on in how they pursue policies, what kinds of policies they'll even see as good or bad policies. It can't help but do that. But it's also important to say the spiritual authority has no ability or legitimacy to demand that non-Christian public officials act in line with their faith. Because they're not members of the church. Obviously, we want them to hear about Christ. We want them to come to faith. But you can't expect a non-Christian to act and think like a Christian. You can't force them to do that. You certainly can't say, we're going to excommunicate you because they're already excommunicated. <laughs> they're not members of the church in the first place. So what do they care what Christ teaches about these things? Obviously, that's not a good situation for them to be in. But it's just to say, if they're not part of Christ's people, we can't treat them as though they're part of Christ's people and demand that they act like part of Christ's people. Make sense? We can still ask them to do their secular duties, but very uh, importantly, we don't do that per se as members of, of the church, as people exercising spiritual authority. Um, we do it as people who are citizens. That is to say, it's not like we're the church, we know what Christ says, and therefore you need to do your secular duty. We can and we should say that, but we have no expectation that they'll listen to us. We can, as citizens of the secular kingdom, however, say, these are your secular duties, you ought to do them. Knowing the whole time as Christians that we're also speaking in line with our faith when we do that. Make sense? Covering a lot of ground, and I, feel, and I know I'm talking kind of fast. So uh, is there anything about that that you want to look at a little more carefully? That can be the same as you say we're limited in our spiritual knowledge. A lot of times we're limited in our knowledge of what the actual secular duties and laws are also. Oh, exactly. We, we can only act from what we know, and it's very important to know that we only know so much. We don't know what we don't know. Um, and I mean that both in the sense of, obviously, if we don't know it, we don't know it. But we don't even know what kinds of things fall under that category of we don't know them. We're ignorant about the limits of our ignorance. And it's always good, therefore, to act with a certain amount of humility when we're dealing with these things. Recognizing that there are probably issues we are unaware of. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, shut up because you don't know. After all, you can only assume what you know. That means you engage from what you know, being open to the fact and the very real possibility that new information might come along, which will say, actually, I understand why you're saying that from what you know, but here's some things you don't know. Oh, well, maybe I was wrong or maybe I need to adjust my previous view because there's just things that I didn't know before. Rather than saying, I don't care about that, I know this, and all this other stuff doesn't matter. 
So of course we always want to engage as citizens um, with our country, but we always want to do so with a certain level of humility, not a humility, and I emphasize, that keeps us from engaging. That's undue amount of humility. It assumes that we know nothing, will never know nothing, and that we're and which leads us to actually give up on doing the things that God has called us to do. After all, we're all called to be good and faithful citizens, right? And if you think that you will never know enough to engage, then you're not being a good and faithful citizen because you're just giving up trying owing to your assumed and probably correct assumption that you're ignorant. Engage, but with the humility of knowing you are ignorant and being willing to learn where new information becomes available and adjust accordingly. Make sense? That's all uh, secular kind of stuff, but it's an important issue, not just from uh, the spiritual side. All right, then let's flip over the page there and go to uh, G on our sheet. Here's another thing that our confessions teach. The church has the authority, the duty, and the right to regulate her own internal life for the sake of good order, for the promotion of faith and good works, and in order to pursue her own proper goals. That is to preach repentance, administer the sacraments, um, preach the gospel, forgive sins, encourage people to, to obedience to Christ, and basically seek to bring them to the eternal life of Christ. Those are the proper goals again. And uh, just to, if you have it with you, let's turn to the, uh, here we are, number eight. So Article 8 right here, of the church. Somebody want to read AC Article 7 where it says of the church there, if you can find it. Also they teach that one holy church is to continue forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. And to the true identity of the church, it is enough to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Nor is it necessary that human traditions, that is, rites for ceremonies instituted by men, should be everywhere alike. All right. Now, this might seem like a strange one, but in, in the that second paragraph is what I want to zero in on very briefly before we move to the epitome to really get at this. It says, for the true unity of the church, the only thing necessary is that uh, the church agrees on what the teaching of the gospel actually is and uh, what the right administration of the sacraments is. If you believe in the gospel as the gospel and you're administering the sacraments according to Christ's institution, the church has unity. You don't need anything more. So uh, if this congregation, for instance, uh, teaches and... The same thing about the gospel as, let's just say, the Christian, uh, the Red Brush Church down in Louisville. I'll emphasize, it does not <laughs> teach the same thing. But let's pretend that it did. And let's pretend that they administered the sacraments, both according to Christ's institution. Again, I emphasize, they do not. <laughs> Very different on those things. But if they did... Let's say we kept our worship styles more or less the same. We're here every Sunday using a good old LSB hymnal. They're doing their uh, sights and sounds kind of up on the stage, praise and worship music. Would we still be saying, we are in fundamental agreement, we can be united as the Church of Christ and be in full fellowship with each other. You're welcome to worship at our altar, we're welcome to worship at yours. We can take communion with each other and all of that. Yes! <laughs> 
you could and you should because it is enough for the true unity of the church that we agree on doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that the particular rites and ceremonies that people come up with have to agree and be the same. Things like um, your order of worship, the songs you use, as long as we're not using, of course, songs that teach something diametrically opposed to Christ, and so on and so forth. The idea that they don't have to be alike implies that there is freedom in the church with regard to those things. They are churches, congregations, the church itself has the right and the authority to institute things like rites, ceremonies, and so forth. Notice it's not saying those are bad, it's just saying those are secondary and don't need to be in agreement. But they are going to be there. In fact, this comes very clear in the epitome. Somebody want to read the epitome church rights? It'll go um, up to uh, item number four on the next page. We unanimously believe, teach, and confess that the ceremonies or church rites, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word, but have been instituted alone for the sake of propriety and good order, are in and of themselves no divine worship, nor even a part of it. We believe, teach, and confess that the congregation of God of every place and every time has the power, according to its circumstances, to change such ceremonies in such manner as may be most useful and edifying to the congregation of God. Nevertheless, that herein all frivolity and offense should be avoided, and special care should be taken to exercise forbearance towards the weak in faith. We believe, teach, and confess that in time of persecution, when a plain confession is required of us, we should not yield to the enemies in regard to such adiaphora. Now, adiaphora, just to quickly say, is a, a technical term. It means basically something that is neither commanded by the scripture nor forbidden. Literally, it means a thing indifferent. That is to say, not something that doesn't matter. It's just free. It's, it doesn't make a difference to your status as a church or as a Christian, whether you do or don't do those things, okay? But notice what it says there. And I mean, there's a lot we could talk about there, uh, about a whole lot of issues. But number two is the big one I want to zero in on. Notice that it says that what does the, co the congregation of God of every time and place have the power to do with ceremonies, rites, orders? The right to change them. It has the right to change, which implies the right to enact them in ways, of course, that are always ordered towards um, edifying, that is building up, promoting the faith and the life of the congregation of God. Notice it doesn't say the secular authority has the right and the power to order and arrange the way the church has its ceremonies, its offices, and so forth. The church has that power. This is actually kind of for... For the German Lutherans at the time, and in fact, until very recently, a very relevant point because ever since uh, the Reformation, when the princes kind of more or less were uh, ruling over their territories and establishing and protecting and providing the faith, up through uh, Kaiser uh, Wilhelm and the First World War, up through Nazi Germany, the state always had a huge amount of control over church orders. 
And that was a holdover from what happened after the Reformation when the princes kind of became the defenders of the churches against Catholic armies and so forth. And uh, we're starting to do things like appoint bishops, appoint pastors, um, regulate things inside the church. Uh, and so much so that, uh, in fact, the whole reason we have a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is because um, the uh, Emperor of Prussia back in the day ordered as the... Uh, authority over church order, church life, church worship in that setup, demanded that all churches drop their usual liturgical uses and go on this new um, Prussian order of worship, which was basically trying to force Lutherans and Reformed to worship the same way, irrespective of their differences in belief. Because up to that time, and quite a bit after that time, uh, the ability to govern the church including all of its uh, institutes, was legally given to the power of the state. So they could say things, and they did say things like, it is forbidden for people to gather outside of worship and Bible studies, because that will probably start uh, promoting all kinds of false teaching. And they would punish people. In fact, Martin Stefan, one of our uh, founders, who had a very ignoble end, but um, one of our founders, was arrested frequently because he kept holding Bible studies outside of approved government-sponsored church meetings. They could say, you can only have this kind of pastor under this circumstance, and they need government approval. That's what they did. They said, you even have to follow these orders of worship and not any other, and if you do, you'll get fined, possibly have pastor imprisoned, possibly shut down which was all a forgetfulness of what the Reformation here taught in the Confessions, that the church is the one with the power to, to develop its own ceremonies, its own um, orders of worship, its own offices, its own way of governing itself. The church is in charge of its self-government. Does that make sense? That's basically what the Confessions say here on that point. It is clear to say none of those are uh, required by God, no particular form. You don't, by the scriptures, have to have elders, have to have deacons, have to have bishops, have to have pastors of this particular kind. That's all by human authority, but it has to happen because you need those things to run the church, like we talked about before. You can't show up for worship if you don't know when and how worship is going to happen. You can't uh, know who your pastor is unless you have a way of actually saying, this is going to be the pastor. <laughs> And where does that uh, arrangement come from? Not from the secular authority, but from the spiritual authority invested in the church itself. Make sense? Now, of course, that has all kinds of uh, implications, but I'll just talk very briefly about one um, that I've already mentioned before that's a very practical instance lately. With the uh, COVID restrictions, and I say this Primarily as a matter of something I've come to believe is a matter of confessional principle. It's just what our Lutheran confessions strongly imply. That it is an overreach of secular government to determine how, when, and where the church can or can't worship. By the way, the church uh, was never allowed to meet for the first three centuries of its existence. It wasn't allowed to worship anywhere. It wasn't allowed to hold any kind of service order. It wasn't allowed to have any pastors because it was legally forbidden to do any of those things. But did people still meet in their homes? Oh, back in those days, they, yeah, they, they met in homes. There's famously outside of Rome, the very seat of the emperor who was trying to persecute them. They would go to these elaborate catacombs built under the city where dead people were buried and very maze-like structures, 
and uh, hold worship services there around a torch in this dank little place surrounded by dead people because it was a safe place. People would always come together weekly for worship to celebrate the Lord's Supper in homes, in, in forests, in fields, wherever they could hide from the government, which presumes that the early church always had it in their head that the government has no authority to stop us from doing this or to intrude on us from doing this. After all, if you stop doing that, can't even follow Christ, because what does Christ command us to do? Uh, lots of things, one of them being, uh, do this, referring to the Lord's Supper, as often as you do it, in remembrance of me. If you're forbidden from celebrating the Lord's Supper, well, then you can't follow Christ's word there. You can't get the grace he's offering. Hebrews uh, talks about, do not forsake the gathering of yourself together. By the way, speaking to people who are being persecuted, as some are in the habit of doing, because there's a command from God. You can't actually follow the commands of God if you stop gathering for worship, because that's what Christ partly commands. And so my point in all of this is that when the government came and started putting restrictions on where, when, and how we gather, they were exceeding their authority. And uh, again, that goes back to what I said a few weeks ago when I said, I feel in my uh, bones that I failed as a pastor by not just going along with that. It's The church is free to go along with those kinds of orders of, say, 10 people per service at the time. If the church hears the government suggest that, even demand it, the church is under no obligation to obey it as the church because they are free to worship Christ and set their own orders. If you start letting the government be the ones who does that, there's no limit to what the government should be able to authorize, no matter what the purpose of the authorization, whether it's public safety or persecution. The church is free, though, to say, we understand the public health crisis, and therefore we're going to restrict our worship for a time to do this of our own authority, out of a willingness to cooperate and a respect for um, what the government is trying to do. But where I went wrong is saying, and therefore teaching you, that it was incumbent on the church to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as though this belonged to Caesar. Because it doesn't belong to Caesar. Romans 13 um, submit to the governing authorities does not imply that the governing authorities have the authority to govern the church in its orders, its ceremonies, its worship life. Like I said, if it did, <laughs> then Paul was breaking his own statement by even telling people to worship. So what I did wrong as a pastor was present to you what is frankly a false teaching, though at the time I sincerely believed it, I'm still sincerely wrong, that as a matter of obeying the secular authority, we ought to and should, to obey God, follow what the state says because the state had the authority to do it. The error was not in how we responded as a matter of practice. The error was in assuming that the reason we practiced that way was because the state had the authority to tell us to do that. Does that make sense? What I did wrong was I taught you the state has the authority to dictate our worship, our orders, our governance, and that is simply false. And for that, I've sinned, and I am sorry. And I definitely will not be letting it happen again. <laughs> not to say we won't ever curtail our worship practices in view of what the state might recommend, but I will never present it as, this is what we must do because the state says it, and we have to honor the state's authority. Clear? It would be wrong to uh, continue to meet in the, just as a defiance of what they're saying. Well, I mean, if you're just doing it 
to be a stick in their craw, you're probably doing it for not particularly righteous motivations. Now, um, you could go to the argument where, um, for instance, I, I will say this, let's say that every church across the country except one was convinced the state has the authority to do this. Well, then uh, this one LCMS church who's refusing to do it could legitimately appeal to number four there. That in times of persecution, when a plain confession is required of us, we should not yield to the enemies in regard to such things. That is to say, uh, this was pointed at a certain thing. Um, I'll give you a little bit of history to explain what I mean, and so it'll make more sense what I'm about to say. At the time this was written, about 20 years prior, there had been a... One of the co-authors of many of the documents in the Book of Concord, Melanchthon, wanted to find some kind of peace with the Catholic powers and principalities and with the Catholic Church to try to... Nobody wanted the Reformation, by the way. Nobody wanted the Church to split. That was not Luther's intention. We got kicked out of the Church. We very much wanted to be part of the Church, the Catholic Church. So when the split ultimately happens, nobody saw that as... Good. Everything is great now. We wanted the split to end. We wanted the Catholic Church to come back to the truth that they were overtly denying by refusing to even allow the truth to be in their midst anymore. So Melanchthon, uh, he wanted to be more conciliatory, and he thought, maybe if we compromise on some things, we'll be able to bridge back towards more unity. On the one hand with the Catholics, and on the other hand uh, with the Reformed. The Reformed, by the way, uh, believed that there was no uh, real presence in the body, in the communion, that it wasn't actually the body and blood of Christ. So one thing they started to agree to was, well, we can wear all of the, we can do a lot of these ceremonies that the Catholics really, really like. Um, things like uh, wearing albs, burning incense, saying certain prayers during the liturgy that we got rid of, and so on and so forth. Because after all, Melanchthon's reasoning was, it's all an indifferent matter anyway. These things aren't commanded. They aren't forbidden in the scripture, right? Therefore, we're free to do them. And it's true. We are free to do them. The problem was um, what that position was teaching people was basically we were wrong all along. The Catholics were right because the average layperson goes to church and everything looks like it's Catholic again. Everything. And suddenly, what are they going to start thinking? I guess the Catholics were right all along. So in that situation where choosing to do something you're free to do would teach the people the wrong thing, it is incumbent on you to do the thing that will teach them the right thing. That is to say, even though um, back in the day, it was perfectly, and it is still today, perfectly free to fill up our censors with incense and fill up the church with that fog and wear these elaborate things and say all these elaborate prayers and so on and so forth, Perfectly free to do that. There are some churches, by the way, Lutheran churches, who do most of those things again. And that's not a problem today because it doesn't confuse people very much today. But back in that time, it was confusing people a great deal. And so they said, if we give up on these things, even though they're not commanded or forbidden, what we're doing is functionally denying the gospel. We're giving people the impression that the Catholics are right about being saved by works because they look at us and they think, oh, they're Catholics now. We are Catholics now. So we can submit to the Pope again as the sole authority of both heaven and earth. We can submit to um, all of these pilgrimages, saints, and so forth. Does that make sense? So bringing that today, if every church in the country or a whole lot of them were under the impression that this is legitimately the power of the secular authority, um, then it, not so much to stick it in the craw of the government, but as a way of saying, we want to correct this false teaching. 
and give a real witness to the truth of the limits of the secular authority, we're going to ignore what they say entirely. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying too many churches took that principled statement. It's just to say that would be a legitimate reason. But if you're just doing it to say, First Amendment, baby, you can't tell me what to do, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Any other questions or thoughts about that? Now let's move, I won't spend a lot of time on uh, H here because as it happens with 4th of July being Sunday, that's going to be a very big part of the sermon. But, um, so not only does the church have certain um, expectations from the government, that is to say, it can expect and demand that the secular authority not intrude on its internal affairs. That it can expect and demand public officials who are Christian do this. Nevertheless, the state also has the uh, right to expect from the church and demand from the church certain things. And the church is obligated, has the duty to do these things. Um, the church has the duty to offer, and again, the secular, this is number H, letter I, and the secular authorities have the right to expect respect, obedience, and cooperation from the church, that is from Christians, within the bounds of its legitimate civil authority. That is to say, the secular authority can say to people under the spiritual authority, respect us, obey us, and so forth, when we're acting within the bounds of our legitimate office. Why can they demand that of us? Because Christians know as a truth in God's word that who established the secular authority and gave it its duties? God. Now, whether the secular authorities will be aware of that fact and make this demand, regardless of what they demand from us, we owe it to them. That is Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. They are God's servants sent by God to punish evil, promote good. When they're acting within those bounds, we, we always obey them. Even if we don't like what they say, even if we disagree personally on a political level or all kinds of other reasons that have nothing to do with our faith, we are duty-bound to obey them. And I'll admit, I, uh, I break this all the time when I get on the road and I start going 5, 10 miles over the speed limit. It's, uh, it's not a good thing, but it is a vice that I have. Maybe I miss this, but we obey them as long as it is right. As long as they are operating within their duties. And by the way, as long as they are right, you sure. But we want to, I, the only reason I want to be careful with that is it's very easy for us to be confused about what is right. That is to say, what standard are we going to apply to say they're acting rightly or not? It's very easy for us, sinful, limited people that we are, to think, if I believe that, if I think this, I'm not talking about Christian faith, but if I believe this is right and they're doing something against that, I'm free to disobey them because it's wrong. Not necessarily, unless you have a compelling way to show that what they are doing is a directly or, or uh, very likely against something in your faith. <laughs> something against their own duties as the second table of the law. Something against what Christ enjoins. Then you are free to disobey them. You obey God rather than man. And you call them out on it. Again, that's a fairly high bar of proof, you might say. If they're telling you, don't preach about Christ, well, obviously, they're wrong. Ignore them. If they're teaching murder is okay, obviously they're wrong. <laughs> but, um, again, for a lot of issues, as we'll talk about next time, 
there's a whole lot more room for debate and different possibilities than I think a lot of us tend to believe, just because we're convinced that what we think is what God thinks, is the right thing. So in this, we always want to, when we're saying, when we're talking about the limits of what is right, uh, we always want to be very careful to submit ourselves to the word of God and our ideas about what we're asserting to the word of God. Make sense? Now you can, again, just on that point, um, as a secular citizen, question on a much broader level about what's right or wrong, but you don't have the legitimacy to say, because you're disagreeing with me, therefore I can ignore you. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. It's just, I'm thinking of things that we are being told that we have to do that. Can you I give me an example? Like you said about us allowing to worship, you know. Sure. That, you know. Well, and there, and there it, it actually is much clearer than um, a lot of us had been under the impression of. When you submit it to the Word of God, it's simply um, the case that the secular government doesn't have the ability to limit our worship like that. And so that is a clear, we don't have to obey them. We might choose to, but we're not compelled to by virtue of them acting within their authority. But let's take another issue just to help. So let's say the mask mandates out in the world, okay? That's, that's less directly dealing with our spiritual life, right? I mean, I think we can all agree, whether you wear masks or not is not obviously connected to whether you're a Christian or not, right? Now, how many of you loved that decision? Whether you can wear one or not wear one. Whether, whether, that you have to wear one in certain public spaces. How many of you loved that decision? I, I don't think there's anybody who loved that, you know, you know, but it was something that was required. Right. So you did it. Well, let's just say, let's even take love out of it and say, well, exactly. Let's say it was required. Um, what, however you felt about it, how many of you thought, I'm not going to listen to this because it's stupid? Not that many times. I usually tried my very best to obey it, but I thought it was very stupid sometimes. I, I, that's, by the way, I'm not saying it's, I'm correct. I'm just saying that's where I was. Did they have the authority to do that? That's the big question here. Well, I guess they had the authority to demand it, but you know, if if you didn't, if you stayed at home, you didn't have to have a mask on. Right. But if you wanted to go out of anywhere, you did. There. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, we you say we guess they had the authority to demand it, and it is possible that. As such, secular authority might be able to mandate those things. There's certainly reason to suspect that genuine worry about the spread of a pandemic falls within the realm of its concern and authority for uh, how to manage that public health crisis in order to protect the civil order. Now, you can make an argue about whether our particular secular authority had the authority to do that. And that's what the courts have been doing over the last several months. That is to say, um, completely separate from spiritual authority, because this is almost certainly an issue completely separate from spiritual authority in most respects. I mean, you can always find tie-ins, but as such, we could say that, yes, the government has the authority to say those kinds of things. Whether the American government, arranged as it has been, under its own legal strictures about how to, how to exercise its authority and carry out its life as a governing authority has, that, has given itself the legal power, is a whole nother question. Does that make sense? There are a lot of people who said something like First Amendment or other amendments 
Um, this is an overreach of executive power. The legislative branch should have this power, not the executive. Those are all legitimate debates, and they've been challenged. And the courts have in their authority to decide whether those kinds of mandates actually line up with the constitutions or the other laws and so on and so forth. That's the way our government is set up, and it's perfectly legitimate as a citizen under this particular government to make those objections, to raise those concerns. That doesn't mean you're free to therefore ignore them because you have the objections. It's to say, as a citizen of the secular authority, um, you do your level best to work through the channels of the secular authority to make those changes. Now, of course, if they're doing something grossly unjust, even on, by both scores, it's a little different. But on this kind of case, do they have the authority? In principle, secular authority would. Whether our secular authority had that authority is still an ongoing question <laughs> that's being settled because a lot of secular citizens, Christian and otherwise, have objected and are now pursuing legal means to decide whether they have that authority or not. Make sense? My example was the maps thing. Sure. Thank you. So, uh, I suppose, so does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. So, it's not to say, I, so I can't straightforwardly say no, American government, our Governor Pritzker, did not have the authority to do that. I might personally not believe they have that authority, as a member of the secular order, and I can certainly free to air my grievances under our secular order. So air your grievances and seek to limit the authority within the secular order. That's how you feel. And that's what people have done. Now that doesn't mean in the moment it takes care of any problems. It says, uh, you know, you're not going to get a perfect world order where the government will always be responsive to every objection raised to it, valid or not. And it's not to say that the government will come up with what is reasonably the best answer. It might take decades before they decide once and for all what the real answer is here. And they're free to decide, though, just as the church, I'll put it this way, is free to arrange and order itself, its governing structures, its worship life, so likewise is the secular authority free to arrange itself, its governing structures and orders and so forth. And we can use those structures to air our grievances. In countries, societies, governments that have no such structures, it's an entirely different question. Mercifully, we don't have to answer that question here because we don't live in that kind of a place. So that's one thing the, duty, the church has the duty. I just want to quick get through this in the last two minutes that we have. The church also has the duty um, to offer it something that the secular authorities will almost never ask the church to do, but they have the right to expect that the church will do, to preach to the secular authority about the limits of its authority, about its nature and purpose as a servant of God who is ultimately overseen by God and will ultimately answer to God. That is to say, the, church, the government has the right to expect and the church has the duty to offer preaching the truth to the government about the government. That does not say we push for legislation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have the right to go to our every government figure, Christian or otherwise, and say, remember, you are not the saviors of the world. Your authority is limited. It is temporal. God oversees you, and you should act in accord with the appropriate humility and the desire to seek justice that that relationship entails. They may or may not listen. That is our duty to them.
Likewise, we have the duty to pray for them. Whether we like them or not, whether we hate them or not, it is positively commanded on the church, pray for your governing authorities, that God would use them according to the purposes for which he has sent them. Make sense? Now, again, we haven't gotten into nitty-gritty things like uh, where the interests very much overlap between these two. We haven't talked things like church property, which is a very different ball of wax than um, orders of service. Because as property owners, we very much fall under the secular authority. And the government has the authority to oversee our usage of our church property in ways that don't break the law. That is to say, if we started uh, taking all of your offerings and I started embezzling it, that's not a ma- that's that's both a matter of the spiritual authority. I'm violating the government the authority that the church has established for proper orders of paying the pastor. It's also a matter that the secular authority has a, a stake in, right? Um, same kinds of things with marriage. Uh, obviously, the church has a huge stake in what constitutes proper marriage, what it's supposed to be like. Obviously, the secular authority also has a stake in what it's supposed to look like and be like and to enforce certain laws. And so those areas, areas like that, are always particularly tricky to sort out in practice because there's just no clear, this is the church's, this is the ecclesial, this is the state's. Make sense? It's just harder because they're both have such a compelling concern for it given to it by God. Now, by the way, when I say it, by the way, just to clarify one thing, and then I will finish because I know we're going over time. Um, When I say that, like, the church has the authority to oversee the property, uh, or the state has the authority to oversee the property, we're talking about the authority to manage property like it would do with everyone else. It doesn't treat the church as a special case that it's free to intrude on or not, and it's oversight. It's not management. The church has the authority to manage its own property, right? Um, within the bounds of the laws that apply throughout the rest of the world. So by the way, if the state decides to tax the churches, I certainly hope they don't. I certainly would, as a citizen of the kingdom, want to urge them not to do that. They are perfectly within their bounds, and they're not violating our uh, own ecclesial self-government, as long as they're not being unduly inequitable about it. Make sense? Anyway, all right, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.